Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Nurses Society of Australia's podcast, Nursing Excellence in Cancer Care. My name is Gemma Still, and I'm the CEO of CNSA. Our vision as the peak member organisation for cancer nurses in Australia is to provide the best possible outcomes and experiences for all people affected by cancer. We promote excellence in cancer care and control through the professional contribution of cancer nurses. To achieve this mission, CNSA acts as a resource to cancer nurses around the country, no matter what their geographical location or area of practice. We are the link between cancer nurses, the consumers of cancer nursing services, and other health professionals involved in cancer care. Our podcast series, which will focus on Australian nursing practice and the care for people affected by cancer, speaks to one of our most important strategic imperatives, delivering relevant, practical and accessible professional development. This series has been developed to be a strong communication and education channel for busy cancer nurses to update their nursing practice, knowledge and understanding of the latest cancer treatment options, research developments and patient management challenges. It's an opportunity to enable discussion and share knowledge throughout our connected community. Get ready to be enlightened and empowered. This is Nursing Excellence in Cancer Care, brought to you by the Cancer Nurses Society of Australia. Hi, and thanks for everyone listening to the CNSA podcast today. We are talking today about a nurse-led model of care for people receiving cancer care in the ambulatory setting, the Symptom and Urgent Review Clinic, or CERC, as it's come to be known, and what we have learned in the implementation of these clinics in Victoria over the last 10 years or so. My name is Angela Malarick, and I am a nurse who has worked within the ambulatory cancer services setting for the past 20 years of my career. Today, I'm joined by Georgina Ackers, who's a Senior Policy Officer at Cancer Planning, Integration and Monitoring at the Victorian Department of Health, and Polly Dufton from Austin Health in Melbourne. Polly was a project lead for one of the pilot sites included in the 2018 CERC pilot. She is an experienced cancer nurse and nurse researcher and has led a number of nurse-led research initiatives that can inform the CERC models moving forward. So to set the scene, firstly, I'll talk a bit about how and why the model was originally developed at Western Health about 10 years ago. Western Health were participating in a quality improvement activity looking at streamlining patient flow through chemotherapy day units. And during the diagnostic period, what we noticed was that chair time was becoming protracted for many patients because they were attending as booked with unresolved treatment-related toxicities and cancer symptoms, requiring further assessment diagnostics leading to treatment delays in some cases, but definitely taking up more chair time than was booked. There weren't any existing models of care within cancer services at Western Hospital at the time for patients to contact nurses in between treatments or any other allied health people. So their option if if they experienced cancer symptoms and treatment-related toxicities was really to either present to ED or to soldier on and ensure their next-day oncology appointment, which is what many of them did. If there had been an ED presentation between treatments, transparency over what had occurred was not always at hand as we were still working within a paper-based medical record era. At Western Health, there was a large culturally and linguistically diverse and low health literacy patient population. So that limited how patients sought support between treatments. And I'll also add that the existing model in the unit at the time around pre-chemotherapy education and identification of supportive care needs wasn't consistent and a bit ad hoc. 
So we proposed the nurse-led model to improve the delivery of patient education around self-managing treatment-related toxicities by providing dedicated pre-chemotherapy education to improve supportive care screening and referral because we proposed that vulnerable patients would be identified throughout this process with referral to wraparound services to support them during their cancer journey. And also to provide patients and their carers with a nursing point of contact between treatments who they could contact and seek advice. At the time, there was work coming out of the UK around the 24-hour triage tool. So we used this as a model to develop our own triage tools. It was modified a little bit in terms of providing a structure to the assessment we would make over the phone or in person and the advice we would give to patients. So then I moved to the Austin Hospital, which is in the opposite corridor, the Eastern Corridor of Melbourne, within the Day Oncology Unit environment again. And it was here that I met Polly, which was quite serendipitous, really, and we've worked closely together over the last 10 years. At the time, Polly was about to embark on her PhD, and a particular area of interest was unplanned ED presentations in cancer patients. So Polly, I might hand over to you now just to talk about what has sparked this interest and how you went on that journey. Thanks, Angela. And uh, I do still remember when uh, we first met and quickly realised that we had the shared interest of reducing ED presentations and improving patient care. So it's been uh, a really good last 10 years. But I think the, the my PhD work was primarily based on the realisation that when I worked on the inpatient ward, even before I moved to the Austin, I found that there was a lot of patients being admitted to the ward and often had multiple days um, staying as an inpatient because of symptoms that were potentially preventable if they had better access to supportive care. And I remember thinking, what's going on outside these walls? What's going on through with the patient and their ability to reach out and get the support? What support's available? And so this kind of really sparked my interest in this area. And then, of course, meeting you and having that shared interest of developing a CERC um, at the Austin. And so with my PhD, what we basically did is we looked at could you actually identify risk factors to identify who's more likely to present to ED? And what we quickly found was it's very complicated. The reasons for ED presentation aren't clear cut. And often there's a lot of different aspects that contribute to the decision to present to the ED. And these can be about the person's own circumstances and situation. For example, people often have young children uh, and often that meant that they couldn't go to the GP because they didn't have childcare and they'd go to the ED after hours when there was somebody else around who could look after their child. And what we also really importantly found was there was a lot of system level barriers that meant that people needed to turn up to the emergency department. And one of the main findings was that patients would actually call the hospital and try and get access to advice, but often it just wasn't that simple. They couldn't get through to the right person. Well, there was kind of limited resources available for them to uh, get hold of the right person and have that thorough triage and assessment, which is what the CERT provides. And often to be able to just access medical advice and particularly advice from a cancer specialist, which was their preference, they had no choice but to go through ED. So obviously this work has gained some really good insights about why CERC is so important and how CERC kind of fits into that system and the care for people with cancer. Yeah, thanks, Polly. And Jeannie, you were working alongside me at Western Health back in the early days when the CERC was first implemented there, and then you subsequently moved to the Department of Health. And as Polly's noted, lack of time access has trusted health professionals. 
need patients in the emergency department, which was not the best place for patients. So would you like to comment on your movement to the Department of Health and how the CERC model was observed as something that was useful and perhaps could be progressed from the Department of Health perspective? Well, thanks, Angela. Yeah, I think certainly the many issues that Polly's raised from her research and work within her the PhD, there was certainly many of the reasons that patients faced at Western Health. So being at Western Health during the time of the CERT development, it was a really exciting time and we could see the, the registrars getting little projects of using the data that we collected from CERC to for poster presentations. It's just like looking at the impacts of following treatment for breast cancer and the symptoms that women were calling in with at that time. So there was a lot of interest. The Western Model 1, some really significant quality awards. So it was a really very successful model. I came to the Department of Health in, at the end of 2016. And because the CERC had been so successful at Western, they'd won a number of quality improvement awards and had been presenting widely some of the outcomes from the project. It was seen that it would be a great model to spread across Victoria. So there were three tranches of funding provided to health services in order to develop CERC models. So it was fantastic to work again with Angela. Angela came to work at the Department of Health as a mentor and a project manager to the health services that were supported to set up CERC models. We set up the first tranche of funding in 2017 and we were able to develop the model in four metropolitan hospitals. So this included the Austin Health, which is where Angela was then working. We were able to set up a model for the Royal Children's and also to in the eastern part of Melbourne at Monash and, and at Dandenong. So there were four very different sized hospitals and four different, very different types of models of care. And so we had a very sort of pragmatic approach to set up these models to really meet the needs of the local organisations. So we'll talk a little bit further about the outcomes of the first tranche. And in the subsequent years, we were able to spread the model to some regional areas and also some additional sites within Melbourne metropolitan areas. And the great thing is too that there was other areas of funding that other hospitals used to set up their own CERC models. So the CERC model has really spread throughout Victoria and the funding has allowed sites to develop their own model to meet the individual needs of their services, look at the particular tumour streams that need support or be able to look at areas where there's a lack of support at particular health services. And there's been a community of practice to share ideas and resources, and that's been a really fantastic way to support all the nurses and medical staff and any, anyone else involved in the CERC models. A toolkit was developed, and, and you worked very hard to develop that toolkit while you're at the Department of Health. It can be found on the website, and that's yep. made a, a really practical resource for people that want to set up the model to get some ideas and to really build a very solid structure and governance model. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jana. And I think the thing is, it's not a homogenous model. It, it does have one title, but obviously people tailor it to their local needs. So if you've got 
a site where there's a number of advanced clinical nurse practice roles, all well supported by registrars, then your model is going to be very different than working in a small service where you don't have those supports. But I remember how excited we were at the Austin Poly when we got the funding for that 2018 grant because we had done a feasibility study the year before that was funded via our integrated cancer service which demonstrated that it would be a value, but getting models like this over the line, that they're, they're not hugely expensive models, but then they come at a short-term cost is always difficult. So we were really excited to get that funding by the first tranche. And this is a good example about serendipity in your career, I think, and two people just ending up in the same place at the right time and being able to progress something. But I suppose I will talk about 2018, which was the first tranche that Gina alluded to before, because that is the impetus for this paper. And I do remember we set up a very steering committee at the Department of Health level. We had clinicians, medical staff, nursing staff. We had consumer representation on that committee. And we spent a lot of meetings talking about how are we going to evaluate this. And of course, the health economists are always going to look at how can it save hospitals money? That's what they want to do which is difficult in a 12-month pilot, but we did spend a lot of time talking about that. And the evaluation methodology that we basically came up with at the time was looking at at attendance, so how uh, acceptable it was from a patient perspective, and then developing a consumer engagement survey and a clinician survey. The consumer engagement survey was lifted from the Victorian Health Experience Survey. Some of the questions were lifted out of there, and we just designed our own uh, clinician engagement survey. So that paper describes the evaluation of the project. And I I will add that it it took us a number of years and rejections to get that paper over the line. So we're pretty happy to have it out there in the public domain. But it showed that it was a very acceptable and feasible model from a patient perspective. There were 3,095 patient encounters reported across the four sites in a six-month period. So really good engagement. From a patient satisfaction perspective, the biggest win really was that they were ha- they had a dedicated point of contact. And as Polly talked about with her earlier research into ED avoidance, patients had very unsatisfactory and inconsistent experiences when they tried to contact hospitals. They called a day oncology unit. The day oncology nurses were often too busy to really give them the time they needed. If they called an inpatient ward out of hours again, People didn't have time to address their needs. So that was a real win from a patient and carer perspective. I I talked a bit about Western Health really modifying the one for the the Western Health pilot, but for the 2018 pilot tranche and onwards, it's been pretty much the Yukon tools, the Australianized version that was launched a few years ago now. So that was pretty much the tool that's been used. And that did provide a good structure for nurses to grade symptoms and guide advice. There's an accompanying manual that goes alongside that UConn's tool as well. And there were some really good initiatives that came out of that pilot that a lot of other subsequent pilots have used. Just something as simple as a fridge magnet to give to patients with the phone number was a real winner so that it was always in patients' face. It's just a number that they call or some places at the first encounter, they they put the certain number directly into the patient's phone, those sorts of things. So Gina, I don't know, as a co-author, if you want to throw anything else in there in terms of the 2018 pilot or poly, if you want to add anything. 
I will say that one of the things that I remember about when we first got that funding and we were really excited and I think I learned some really important lessons about um, how to implement change in an organisation. Angela, and I remember you talking about the Lindsay Fox truck. I don't know if you want yeah. to repeat it because I don't remember what it was. You can say it. but uh, Yeah, Lindsay Fox started out with one truck and he put a sign on the back of his truck that said, you are passing another fox. So it created an illusion that there were a lot of Lindsay Fox trucks on the road, but actually there was only one initially. And that sort of helped. And obviously there's more than one now. But yeah, so it was about, it was about talking up the, the circ model, wasn't it? Is that what you're alluding to, Polly? Yeah, absolutely. And we ended up putting posters around kind of cancer services and saying like CERC is coming so that people were like, oh, what is CERC? And it really created That's right. some yeah. excitement. And I think, I, I think it worked because we got really good engagement, especially in that pilot year. People were excited. People were interested in what we were doing. It was really fantastic. And also one of the things, talking about the fridge management and things like that, one of the things that we, I remember we did is we went and we created a poster that said, Zerk, this is what you call Zerk for. And as part of the hospital process, you have to go and seek some consumer feedback. And we went and asked a few people, well, what do you think of this? One lady said to me, well, why would I go up and read that? Zerk means nothing to me. I'm not going to go and look at that poster. She's like, you should call it Cancer Nurse on Call or something. I mean, obviously we never changed the name, but the posters always say, and they mm-hmm. still say to this day, Cancer Nurse on Call, call CERC. And I think that has been really helpful in making sure that people actually know what the service is. And that's something that they have an understanding of is that Nurse on Call piece. So I think that was really yeah. important. Yeah. And of course, Polly, you were the project lead at the Austin for that 2018 pilot. And the other thing that you did really well was engaged with ED. We had a really... We had a, a leadership team in ED at the time that were quite on board, but you worked a lot with them, didn't you? Yeah, we did a couple of education sessions and they were really supportive and really great. We went down and we talked about it. We talked about reasons that you might be able to triage patients up to us within kind of opening hours and it worked really well. And I think we learned some really important lessons and obviously COVID happened, which changed a lot of different things, but it, it worked really well. We had great engagement and, and we definitely were able to get a lot of patients up from ED that presented at three o'clock with a symptom that as people with cancer experience, we could manage incredibly quickly. And if they'd stayed in ED, they probably would have been waiting for, I don't know, let's be honest, at least four hours before being seen by anybody. So yeah, it was a really positive aspect of what we did. And Gina, any other points that you'd like to make at this time? No, but when Polly was speaking before, it reminded me of one of the communities of practice when, I think it was the girls from Tarelgan, they were saying that they used Zerk as a, like this person's been searched or we're going to, like it was, it was quite funny the way that it was just used. Like Polly was saying before, people go, what's Zerk? But within a very short period of time, Everyone was very familiar with CERC and what it could do and how it helped patients yeah. and how it, helped, how it helped relieve the pressure off other staff. So I think it, nurses who worked in CERC were called CERCers. CERCers. <laughs> I couldn't remember all of them, but yeah, yeah, there was quite a few. Thanks, Gina. Now, Polly, obviously you've really taken the flag and, and you're flying it high for CERC now because as Gina mentioned earlier, there's been a huge evolution with now 20-odd circs across the state of varying models. They're all a bit different, not exactly the same. But you've since finished, completed your PhD, so it's uh, Dr. Dufton now. 
and you're really continuing to conduct nurse-led research in the space of CERC. So we'd love it if you'd share the work that you're doing currently. Thank you, Angela. So as you talked about, we know that the models are slightly different and based on local need. And I think we identified that there's some really important pieces of work going across different hospitals, but there wasn't really a, a way to share them perhaps in a really solid way. And by that, I kind of mean through kind of rigorous research methodology, I suppose. And so we've done this huge piece of work and we're kind of coming to the end now and it's been around two years and has very kindly been funded by the Victorian Department of Health and the Integrated Cancer Services. One of the things that we're looking at is what are the barriers to implementation? How have people adapted it to a local setting? When you don't have access to medical staff, what do you do? And particularly the regional services have had some really fantastic ways of kind of overcoming some of those barriers around not having medical staff, which everybody will read when the publication comes out. But then we're also doing this big piece of work now where we're doing an in-depth process evaluation across seven hospitals, two regional and five metro. And we're looking particularly around access. And so CERC, ultimately, it's around improving timely access to specialist cancer advice, which is what we know people need and what people want. But actually, what we're assessing, is CERC actually accessible? Because there is argument to say that without that element of proactive outreach to identify people that perhaps are having issues and are having symptoms and problems, but who aren't calling us and seeking early advice, is the model at risk of being for highly motivated individuals? And so how do we balance reactive care, which is incredibly important, but then also making sure that the people that perhaps don't even have the ability to perceive them to need to contact CERC, how do we make sure that they get equal access as well? And that's that equality piece that's really important. Looking at things like a point prevalence survey. So who actually knows that CERC exists? And really interestingly, we've done this point prevalence survey of hundreds of different people across many organisations. And between kind of 60 and 70% of people say that they know what CERC is. But then if you say, okay, if you don't know what CERC is and you needed to contact somebody, what would you do? And a lot of people say, well, I'd go to the fridge magnet, which is CERC, but they actually don't own that name. And so I think there's obviously some really important work that needs to come out of that. On top of that, we're doing interviews with 80 patients and caregivers across the seven sites to understand what their access is like, how they perceive their access, what contributes to that. Also looking at what their experience of using CERC has been like, has it been timely, has it been positive, and then also looking at what their expectations are. And the hope with that is that we can develop some patient-reported experience measures that potentially can be rolled out across all CERCs, which can kind of help those ongoing evaluation, particularly of user experience. Yeah. Thanks, Polly. And really important, isn't it, in these economically constrained times that we're certainly facing in Victoria, if not the rest of Australia, to be able to demonstrate the value of the models, because otherwise I think it easily becomes a target for potential cuts. So Gina, the model was used throughout COVID and was identified potentially addressing a need for patients during the COVID era. Would you like to comment on what happened at a department level to help encourage the circus strategy throughout COVID? Yeah, so certainly during the COVID times, the department was meeting regularly with key 
professionals, health professionals from the health services and hearing about the enormous pressures on the health system. I mean, everyone knows that they can remember what a difficult time that was. One way that the department felt that they could assist health services was to give some additional funding to CERC. And because CERC is such a, an agile kind of model, we wanted to see if there was ways that we could assist health services in whatever was needed. So there was a process, an EOI process that was done for all the health services to identify some areas that they could use some additional resources for. So certainly, as we've talked about before, during the COVID times, patients were either very fearful of coming to ED or they were actively encouraged not to come to ED. They were actively encouraged not to come to outpatients and they were, had very minimal face-to-face contact with their nurses in the day oncology units or their medical staff. So there was a real gap for patients at that time at getting support and, and getting information and assistance with managing their symptoms. So the funding was really quite open to health services and the model was adapted according to the needs of each service. So some of the examples that some of the CERC units used was having additional hours for CERC nurses. So that might have been additional nurses throughout the day or extending the hours to a out-of-hour service for the evenings or in some places on the weekends. And then so this gave patients a direct contact where they could seek help and advice. A lot of the services helped with ensuring that patients had access to vaccinations or to antivirals. And importantly, it was in, there was a lot of work in managing patients that were COVID positive or suspected COVID positive. So there was enormous amount of work going on at that stage and just the additional resources was providing a little bit of assistance to the oncology units at that time. Yeah, I think that's key, isn't it? What CERC does is it just does add a layer of meatiness to the care that patients receive because otherwise, increasingly because of the increasing numbers of patients that are coming to day oncology units for treatments as new treatments emerge and patients live longer on treatments for longer, the reality is that it becomes a little bit of a chair time is absolute gold. So there's no time for getting around patients if they've got other needs other than specifically getting a drug into a vein. Yeah. I wonder, Paul, if you wanted to just say a few words about what was done at the Austin with your funding, because that really provided quite a lot of support for patients during those times. Yeah, absolutely. Angela was obviously there too. So it was another one of our great pieces of teamwork that we managed to accomplish. We basically extended the hours from four till 10 and we did an after hours all call service. And so the nurse would, or one of the senior oncology trained nurses would take the phone home. And then we would just be at home and obviously we have access to medical records and things like that. But I think it was really interesting. Like obviously we kept a lot of people out of ED, to be honest, because they would ring up and say, I don't know what to do. And in those situations, some of them would be going, well, I'm on the way to ED. And we'd go, no, no, you don't have to. I think we can manage this without needing to go through ED. So we definitely kept people out of ED. But really interestingly as well, we found that there were a lot of kids, perhaps older patients who were calling after hours, who had gotten home and gone to see their parent and realised that there were some symptoms going on that perhaps needed that early intervention. And so we get a lot of those calls. And I think that it's a really improved access because, again, not everybody's available or develops symptoms from 8.30 to 4.30, Monday to Friday. So I think, yeah, kept people out of ED and improved access to a lot of people that couldn't access it within those business hours. Yeah, and it's just really simple things like arranging a script to be faxed to the pharmacy 
that otherwise a patient would had to come to ED for if we couldn't arrange that. And we had good buy-in, didn't we, with medical staff at the Austin? Yeah. yeah. And obviously there was no access to GPs as well, so they didn't have that avenue of support. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess economically, reducing the number of cancer patients presenting to the ED would seem to be a more sustainable service pathway. What do you think we need to do to make this more of a reality in centres across Australia? Over to you, Polly and Gina, for your ideas. I mean, I think it's interesting because I know that there is a push for proving that it's a cost-effective model of care, and really we need large bodies of work with lots of resources and funding to be able to prove that at a randomized controlled trial setting. But I almost don't think that's ethically the right way to go because we know that it improves patient care, patient experience, patient outcomes. And so actually, I think being able to prove that is perhaps not the priority now. So I think what we need is we need really good data, data to show that it's being used, what it's being used for patient experience as well, hearing directly from patients how and why it's helped, I think is incredibly powerful. Just going to add that during our small economic evaluation that we did with the first pilot from the department, we did show a a positive outcome of $1.73 gained for every dollar spent. Polly and Gina, in terms of your final advice for nurses and healthcare networks who might be considering implementing a CERC model or some other type of nurse-led model that they want to call something else, <laughs> would be your advice? It's all about the data. We've just got to collect good data. You've got to show the value, show the value for your local clinicians and most importantly, show the value for your organisation. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, and I just can I just study about the data actually. So I did forgot to mention that we developed a database for the original pilot that most of pilot of CERC model have used with varying levels of sustainability, I have to say. But as electronic medical record systems are being built increasingly over time, I think try and get in there early with your developers to be able to capture the data automatically in your electronic medical record because that is really, that's the best way forward rather than having separate databases. Sorry, Polly, over to you. Um, I think what I'd contribute in addition to what you said is the importance of really global leadership. I think one of the only reasons that Austin was so successful was because we had brilliant leadership in the way of you, Angela. I'll stop it. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I think... That the surf nurses as a bunch are just incredibly passionate, hardworking, really clever nurses who are highly trained and skilled. And, and that's, you know, absolutely wonderful. But having people in your organization that are going to continue to advocate for how important it is for the resources that they need, because these services are growing and the activity is just going up and we can't sustain it. So we need to think of ways to be able to be more effective and more efficient. And sometimes we are going to need more resources. So we really need people, those key stakeholders advocating for how important it is. Well, I think we better wrap it up now. I think thanks so much, Polly and Gina, for joining me in this podcast about CERC models and their capacity to manage patients. Thanks for listening. You can listen anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's widely circulated. Why don't you listen to some other podcasts in this series called Nursing Excellence in Cancer Care. If you put that into your search engine, nursing podcasts will 
come up. So thanks again for listening and we look forward to talking to you further about this.